Hey, small town fam. This is Paul Holes. Make sure you subscribe to The Briefing Room with Detectives Dan and Dave. Season two is out now. Subscribe now and thanks. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, small town fam. How are you? How are you doing? It's me, Yardley. So I have some great news and I have some less great news. The great news is this episode featuring Detective Scott, who's a new guest on the podcast, is incredible. I predict that you're going to stop whatever it is you're doing and just listen. It's that compelling. The less great news is this episode marks the end of season seven. I know, I know, we share your disappointment, but rest assured we are already on the grind gathering material for season eight, which will be coming to you in early 2021. Meanwhile, if you feel like you can't live without us for a couple of months, we do have a Patreon, and there we deliver specially curated, super delicious, snackety snackable content right to your inbox every week. And your $5 monthly subscription helps put gas in the podcast car. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, we'd love to see you there. You can find all the info you need at patreon.com forward slash smalltowndickspodcast. And now, please settle in for The Girl Next Door. There's nothing unexpected in law enforcement. Once you think you've seen it all, you've heard it all. The job smacks you in the face and says, no, you haven't. Some of these stories are so outrageous that you couldn't make it up. It actually has to be true. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities, as well as the locations of these crimes, out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. 
Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dan. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you. Great to be here. Good to have you. And we have Detective Dave. Good morning. I'm always happy to see you. Likewise. And we are so happy to welcome a new guest to the podcast, Detective Scott. How's it going this morning, everyone? It's so great to have you here. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. So, Scott, you have a really interesting case for us. Why don't you tell us how this case came to you? One morning, I was sitting at the desk, and I got a phone call from the clerk at the front reception. And she says, hey, Detective Scott, I need you to come to the front counter, please. And so that instantly gets your juices flowing in the morning and you say, wait, okay, this is out of the normal routine of my morning. Being the sex crime detective, I instantly knew something just occurred that's out of the norm for them to call me. And I walk up the aisle of the police department. You can see the windows that lead into the lobby. So you can kind of see who's sitting there. And there's only two people sitting there. There's a female who looked like she was maybe in her late teens sitting next to a male who was also maybe in his late teens, early 20s. And I went up there and I talked to the records lady and she had this look in her face of like, I don't know if this is a lie or this is going to be true. She wants to run it by your bullshit meter. Like, tell me if I'm feeling what I should be feeling. Like, are you seeing the same things I'm seeing? Yes, exactly. And she just told me a few things and I said, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll just bring them back and talk to them. So I opened the door, I let them in, and I greeted them with a handshake. Hi, I'm Detective Scott. Uh, I asked for their names, and they provided their names. Her name is Victoria, and his name is Gabriel. I could instantly not just tell, but feel that Victoria faced some issues, maybe some social issues. You know, her voice was not like a normal teen. She was obviously very juvenile in her speech. And about how old? 17, 18 years old. And she sounded like maybe she was 11, 10. Like her social skills had been stunted. Correct. Okay. Did she make eye contact? No, she did not make eye contact. She was very nervous, very pale, almost to the point where you think she was in shock, like as if something had just occurred recently. So I I took them to our conference room, sat them down. We have a wonderful resource uh, at my agency. It's a licensed domestic violence, sexual assault coordinator. Victims advocate type person. Correct. And so I brought her in and said, hey, can you sit with Victoria? I'm going to go talk to Gabriel. And so I sat down with Gabriel and I asked him, hey, Gabriel, who is this? Is your sister? And he says, well, I don't really know who she is to me, but you know, for the last month, I've been helping her a lot. I even took her from her home and she's staying with my aunt here in your city. I was like, wait, you took her from her home, so she's a runaway, correct? He goes, no, 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 she's not a runaway. She's being held captive in her house for a long time. Oh. This is the stuff of movies, right? There's nothing unexpected in law enforcement. Once you think you've seen it all, you've heard it all, something new pops up, and you're just like, oh, that's a new (laughs) one, you know? So he began to tell me the story. Gabriel and his family were the next-door neighbors to Victoria. They had met previously in eighth grade. Gabriel and Victoria? Gabriel and Victoria. Victoria moved in to this particular house with her dad when she was in about eighth grade. She went to school and enrolled only for a very limited time, like less than a month. In that month, she met Gabriel for the first time. They were in the same classes and they realized they were next door neighbors. After that month, Gabriel never saw her 
for like two years. Never saw her. Family hasn't moved out of the house, though. Family has not moved out of the house. And it was just them two living in the house, Victoria and their father. Gabriel confirms that the father works as a cable guy and has a cable van. He would leave in the morning. The only person he ever saw come or go was the dad. So Gabriel figured that Victoria had moved somewhere else. And so about two years later, now their sophomore year of high school, Gabriel starts to see some movement in the house during a day. He just sees movement in the window and says, is she back? Like, this is weird to me. He starts to investigate this. I liken this to The Burbs, the movie The Burbs. Like he literally looks over and sees shadow forms in the window and says, that's not the dad. The dad left. Someone else is living there. Dad's work van is gone for the day. Correct. And now he's seeing movement in a house and he's like, wait a minute. Hold up. Right. I love that you just referenced The Burbs. Love that movie. There's more Burbs references here because... (laughs) Gabriel's living next to the Clopex. Correct. (laughs) A few days go by and he sees it again. So he jumps the gate and he goes over there and he looks through the window and lo and behold, he sees Victoria. And Victoria sees him and she's scared and he says, no, 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 no. Hey, I'm your neighbor. Remember me? Remember me? She doesn't even open up the window and he leaves. A few more days go by. Hadn't told anyone in his family about this yet. And he waits till the father leaves and he jumps back over, knocks on the window and she comes and they start to talk. And they start to develop this little relationship of like, hey, well, what's going on? Do you have a Facebook? And she says, I don't have a Facebook. Like, I don't even have a phone. I'm kind of stuck here. haven't been out. I go to the store sometimes with my dad at night, but like, that's it. So she starts to see that like, this is not a normal situation. So Gabriel ends up convincing Victoria to leave. For Victoria to now leave is a huge step. Yes. And that took a few months. It wasn't like this happened from one day to the next day. It wasn't just a, hey, we need to get you out of here. Oh, okay. It was, no, my dad is nuts. He'll kill us both. This isn't going to happen. So she was terrified. Terrified. And Gabriel is relaying this to you while Victoria is off with the victim's advocate. Correct. By this time, I had worked sex crimes for several years. And I had heard a lot of really disturbing, life-changing events. So I make it a point to believe 100% of what these victims tell me so that I do them justice. Yeah, you have to take those in good faith because you always have this reminder in the back of your head that just when I think I've seen and heard it all, the job smacks you in the face and says, no, you haven't. Here's this one. When you have victims come in and you talk to victims, some of these stories are so outrageous that you couldn't make it up. It actually has to be true. Yeah. So Gabriel tells me a few more things. He planned on taking her one time. She was ready to go. And she never came out like she was supposed to. She wasn't answering the knock on the window. And uh, a few more days went by. He went back again just to see if everything was okay. And she broke down. She said, hey, listen, I think my dad knows. I I don't know how, but he came home in a very, very aggressive mood. And it was not a fun night for me. This entailed binding her to a chair with cords, sexually assaulting her in a perverse, aggressive way. So 
Gabriel says, okay, listen, I'm going to call the cops. And she says, no, you can't call the police. So he's able to convince her. One night they leave. He takes her to the aunt. The only other person that knows is Gabriel's dad. And Gabriel's dad knows nothing else. Doesn't know that this girl, he's been captive. All it is is, hey, I have a friend in trouble. Her parents had to go back to Mexico. I don't want her to stay at home by herself. Can she please go stay with aunt? This is what Gabriel's telling his dad. This is what Gabriel's telling his dad. So she ends up leaving. She leaves in March. She gets to Aunt's house. She has a phone, but it only really has two numbers in it. It's her father's number and Gabriel's number. Victoria's father gave her a phone at home that she wasn't supposed to take out. It was an old flip phone. There was no real internet access. She could play Snake like we played Snake in the 90s, right? That was it. That's her access to the outside world. Yeah, that and TV. And that's also kind of what's imprisoning her, too, because dads that's the lifeline with dad. And if she doesn't answer that phone, it's like, why are you not answering your phone? Right. How long has Victoria been out of dad's house? She's been out of dad's house for almost a month. And dad has no clue where she had gone. I can imagine what that was like the first day he came home and Victoria's not there. Dad's probably frantic. Yeah. Is Gabriel still staying at his house next door? The vast majority of Gabriel's time is at the aunt's house as well. Okay, so he's not there. No. So I said, okay, what's happened since you've been at aunt's house here? He says, hey, things are going okay. You know, my aunt has been really helpful with Victoria, but Victoria wanted to call her dad the other day. And so she did. He says that Victoria called against his and his aunt's wishes. Meanwhile, has Victoria's father been calling her also? Yeah, text messages, calls. That she's been ignoring. That she's been ignoring. So she calls and the dad starts to throw on that classic domestic violence style guilt towards Victoria. Like, how could you do this to me? I can't believe you've done this to me. Your mom in heaven would be so upset that you left the family. You talk about the cycle that these offenders go through in the domestic violence cycle of offenders, it's anger right off the top. Yeah. And it's interesting on the day that Victoria calls dad back where he might be in that circle. He picks up on the guilt stuff and starts guilting her because he's had a month plus to think about if and when I talk to her, what am I going to say? I've got to convince Victoria to come back to me or not disclose this to anybody. Who is she told? Who's coming after me? Yeah. What's Victoria's dad's name? His name is Dwight. Okay. She called him Pa. You know, listen, Pa, very, very innocent. So Dwight and Victoria are on this phone call and Gabriel's listening. He said he stayed because of moral support. He wanted to make sure that she was okay. And as Dwight's guilting Victoria, Dwight says, I know why you're doing this. It's because of that boy next door, isn't it? You're with him, aren't you? I know you're with him. Don't lie to me. I know you're with him. Gabriel's like, how does he know this? Like, don't give me up, right? He says, I'm scared. Victoria's told me that this guy's used force and fear on her for her whole life, has mentioned that he's killed people, that he's not afraid to do it again. What? Oh, yeah. After this phone call finished, Gabriel thought that Victoria would go back to her dad. I can imagine Gabriel in that instance would have been scared shitless. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I also love Gabriel for being just brave enough to go, you know what? I'm going to go check that out, the movement that I saw in the window. Like, Gabriel's a hero. Absolutely. 100%. 
So you get done with Gabriel at the police station. What kind of interaction did you have with Victoria that day? I brought in Victoria and I said, listen, Victoria, I just got done talking to Gabriel and I really like Gabriel. He's a really, really good friend. You pick friends well. I just wanted to let her know, hey, I'm in your corner. I'm your champion right now. You're smart. You made a good decision going to Gabriel. And so we talked for about 15 to 20 minutes about things that she found were fun, things that she liked to do. And what were those things? She liked solitaire, a lot of daytime TV. She loved to read. She had a Nancy Drew series. She had started Harry Potter. She loved to read Goosebumps. I'm sitting in front of this 17, 18-year-old female, and I'm talking to her about Goosebumps. Luckily, I was a fan of Goosebumps, so I talked about The Night and the Terror and all those other cool books that I remember reading. Oh, so like really young kids' books. Correct. Right. So then I said, okay, hey, talk to me about what's been going on. She was very fast and jumpy. So you ask her a question about how'd you meet Gabriel, and it becomes, well, my dad said he would kill someone if I ever told anybody. That's the style of communication I'm receiving back. So it was very difficult, but she started to tell me very similar timeline to what Gabriel was saying. I went to school for a few months. I didn't really like school much. You know, I was behind in classes and I just felt stupid. And my dad wouldn't let me go back. He thought I was going to tell people. He thought I was going to talk to my teacher and that he was going to go to jail. And that he was going to have to kill someone. And he told me he would kill people. And I asked her, do you remember the first time your dad did something inappropriate to you? And she says, yeah, I was like six. And is she in school when she's six? Yep. She's in elementary school. She knew where she was living at the time. She was still living in the same city, just a different address. So I'm trying to develop about how many times did this occur? The younger ones, they can't give you the number of times. Yeah. They can give you like, well, I used to visit dad on weekends and it happened every weekend. In our county, our forensic interviewers will talk about the first time it happened. Do you remember the last time it happened? Tell me about the worst time. Tell me about the one that you remember most. So you get frequency and you know you're way below the amount of times these crimes occurred. But, I mean, at some point you get to absurd amounts of charges. Yeah. You're not going to get an exact amount of times. Okay, so we know the first time that you remember was your six. So tell me about another time you remember when you were six or seven or eight. And we went down that path. And I asked her, hey, have you told anyone other than Gabriel about this? And she says, one time I did. About when she's eight in elementary school, she's playing at the playground. She tells a school campus supervisor, like, you know, the moms or dads that'll sit out during recess and make sure the kids are following the rules. Like a hall monitor. Yeah. Okay. Victoria walks up to this recess monitor and she says, hey, um, is it okay for my dad to touch me? And the lady looks at her and says, oh, don't start that. Just go on and play. No. Yeah. And so she's totally rejected by this lady. Oh, my God. And she told me that just confirmed what my dad told me, that nobody would care. This is why we have mandatory reporters. Yeah. Dwight tells Victoria not only that no one would care, but she's going to be a liar and she's going to get in trouble. And then it becomes, well, if you tell someone I'm going to hurt someone and I'm going to hurt you, 
you know, I've killed before, all this stuff jumps with severity, with aggression. The whole point is to really keep her insulated. These predators want to make someone feel like they're nobody and that they have no other recourse but to follow the will of the predator. Victoria literally didn't leave her house for a few years. She wasn't allowed to go outside and play and talk to people. She wasn't allowed to go in the backyard. This campus supervisor completely dropped the ball on this. Yeah. You know, I think had that happened a month ago, maybe even a few years ago, it would have been completely different. It would have been, oh, okay, come here. Let's go straight to the office. We're going to talk to the counselor and the principal. I would say that happens a lot more now, I mean, even just then like five years ago. People have a much greater awareness. Yes. So after that interview, your initial meeting with Victoria, how long before she ends up at a child advocacy center? Next day. Perfect. I'm guessing you're game planning. I need evidence to corroborate this. Right. There's no physical evidence here. Remember, she had gone from that house about two months prior to even coming to the station. So there's going to be no physical evidence. I have to get some corroboration that she's captive. And so I said to Victoria, would you entertain the idea of calling your dad with me here? Would you do that? And she said, yes, I would. To our listeners, Dave is going, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm thinking, I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to get Dwight sooner than later. So Victoria, she said she would do it. We let him go back to the aunt's house that first night. Both Victoria and Gabriel? Yeah. So next day, I take Victoria to the Child Advocacy Center to get her forensically interviewed. And these forensic interviewers do a great job. Before they get into the disclosure, they gauge social, verbal, cognitive development based on answers and narratives given. So they help build a case because they're the experts in that kind of interview situation. Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm not missing something because I'm not the most qualified person in the room to talk to an 11-year-old mindset about this stuff. So after a good interview, a long interview, she's feeling pretty good. So I said, hey, can we go back and can we do this call? And she says, yes. So we go back to the station and it's me, it's Victoria, and it's Gabriel in the Detective Bureau conference room again. I had developed about seven or eight questions that I wanted Victoria to work into the conversation. And we had a few practice rounds. These calls can get very emotional. She knows this is it for her dad, for her pa, right? That this could lead to his arrest. Well, they also feel a lot of pressure because they feel like if I screw this up, then I've screwed up everything for this detective. You know, it's a high pressure, intense moment, even for like the detective. I'm sitting there on pins and needles. Absolutely. I mean, victims put a lot of pressure on themselves. I remember I would try to build them up like this is your chance to confront him and tell him that you are not okay with what he did. Like you're trying to build their confidence because you realize this child, this victim has way more courage than you might ever have. It's a huge moment. Yeah. This is the time they get to take that power back. Victoria, this is your power move right here. Let's go, girl. We got this. Right. Gabriel's here. Gabriel's down for the cause. Let's go get this. So we do the call and it's a roller coaster ride, man. It starts off, you know, normal conversation. Hey, where you at? Who you with? You're with him again, aren't you? To I love you. I miss you. I can't believe you leave me. 
we need to go to Mexico. I know the cops are going to be after me. You know what? I'm going to have uncle call you and set you up with a hotel for the next two weeks because I got to make money here. I'm on a job right now. And he's trying every angle, every angle. Finally, she starts to input these questions Dad, I don't want to come back with you because I know you're going to do that to me again. I know you're going to try to have sex with me again, Dad. Well, you know, you didn't like it. Well, Dad, no, I didn't like it. When you heard that, you're like, jackpot. I got him. Oh, yeah. Picture that in this situation. You know, you have have me almost at the head of a table, very similar to this one, Victoria to my right, and champion Gabriel to her right with his hands over his eyes, his elbows on the table, and he's just sitting there like rubbing his temples. And she has this phone down here and you can see the tears in her eyes and... She's like, no, dad, what makes you think I'd want you to do that to me? Well, you never said anything. She's like, dad, what am I supposed to say? And you know, you've did that to me since I was a little girl. You know, she gets really emotional and she starts to cry at him and scream at him. And I knew right then and there, she's good. She's got some power. That power's in her voice. It's a little graggly, you know, no, dad. I was like, oh, here we go. That's a body punch. There we go, Victoria. Keep it up. And she talked to him for a good, I don't know, 25 minutes. And she brought out quite a bit of evidence against the guy, man. Quite a bit of evidence. And this is the kicker. So she convinces Dwight that she's going to go back with him. She says, okay, but you have to promise you'll never touch me again, that you'll never have sex with me again. And he says, no, 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 no. I'll just kiss you. I'll just kiss you on the lips like normal. And she's like, no, that's not normal. Like, you can't kiss me. And he goes, why is this changing? It's that mother effing kid, huh? And then Gabriel goes from hands over his eyes, rubbing his temples to looking at the phone like, what the f- <laughs> What's going on here? And I went, shush. Just relax, shush. Dwight's going to say what he says. Just relax. She says, no, I'm with nobody. I'm by myself. I've been by myself. You know, I'm not talking to anybody. She did a good job. And then Dwight says, are you really going to come with me? Yeah, dad, I will. I will. He goes, okay, listen, I'm going to set you up at the hotel for two weeks. I'll have uncle bring you a tablet so you can watch TV or read, but you can't leave the hotel. Like you can't leave the house. Right. So he's saying like, you can't leave the hotel. And then he says, when we leave, I know that son of a bitch is going to call the cops. So we'll kill him. We're going to have to kill him and we'll go to Mexico. Okay. Dwight's telling Victoria that he knows when they leave, Gabriel's going to call the police and the gig's going to be up. And to prevent that, they're going to have to kill Gabriel and then take off to Mexico like planned. Gabriel's now like, oh, shit. Gabriel gasps. <gasps> and I'm like, don't. Don't make a sound. Right. Game face, buddy. Now he's white. Like, this guy's going to kill me. And then she says this. Where are you at right now, Dad? <laughs> You never told me where you're at. And Dwight tells her he was a few hours north of where we were. Then Dwight says, after this job, I can drive home, just get you set up with the hotel. So call ends. That's gold. That's a touchdown. So now I think investigation-wise, I kind of know a city he's in. He's mentioned he's going to kill someone. He's mentioned he's going to flee to Mexico. This guy's obviously a flight risk. He's obviously a risk to the public. I'm going to get an emergency ping, GPS location ping on his phone. That meets the threshold in my eyes. You checked a few boxes there. Yeah. 
I just need to find out where he is. I don't care if he's in Timbuktu. I'm going to get him. <laughs> I'm not letting Victoria sleep another night without knowing this bastard is in jail. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Small Town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight. So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, small town fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com slash smalltown. Do it. So we have to figure out who the cell phone company is that's carrying Dwight's number. I get a hold of the law enforcement line and, you know, they're asking me, do you have your court order or your search warrant signed? So I could fill out a few sentences, sign it, have my watch commander, lieutenant sign it, and then email it to whatever cell phone company carrier it was. And they'd look at it and say, okay, here's your information. That could take a day or so, two days to get this back. But if you do an emergency order, they're supposed to give it to you within like, I don't know, 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. So I just called and said, hey, listen, man, I have a guy who on the phone just said he was going to kill someone and flee to Mexico. And oh, by the way, he's an active child molester. That's good enough, right? And so they're like, that's three reasons. Boom, you got it. I had pings on Dwight within 35, 40 minutes after Victoria's call was done. So I knew he couldn't have gone too far. And these pings are varying degrees. Sometimes you get a ping, depending on the amount of towers in the area, you get a ping that this phone is west of this tower within 1,500 meters. You're like, well, shit, that could be anywhere. Other pings are, if you get it perfectly triangulated because you've got lots of towers in the area, that's within six meters of this location. Luckily, in this particular case, the pings were very tight within three, four meters. So I know exactly the location that Dwight 
And so I call our surveillance unit and we call our surveillance unit varsity because they're the best. Like you're the varsity team. Everyone else is JV and freshmen, right? (laughs) If you need someone caught, call varsity. And so I called varsity and I said, hey guys, I'm going to send you some pings. I'm going to send you a picture of someone. I need you to go nab them for me. As fate would have it, our varsity team was a city over conducting surveillance on a narcotics investigation very close to where these pings came in. I didn't know that. I just called them to ask them if they were willing to make the drive up to where Dwight was. And they said, hey, you kidding me? We're already here. (laughs) (laughs) So they pick up Dwight. He was in the middle of a job, by the way. He's putting cable in some poor lady's house. They sat surveillance on him for about 10 minutes just to make sure it was him. He'd come out. They didn't get a good look at him. He went back in. He came out to get some stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's our guy. And they just approached him right there on the front yard of this house. Hey, turn around, man. You're under arrest. And while the varsity team was up finding Dwight, we were able to secure a warrant to Dwight's house. So in that particular case, you get the search warrant. You say, hey, I need three bodies to come with me to help search this. Your sergeant goes, your lieutenant goes if they want. And we knew no one was at the house because there's only two people that live there. And we had Victoria at the station and Dwight was coming down from, you know, being arrested. I wanted to see if there was signs of kidnapping. You want to corroborate the interview that Victoria's given you. Correct. We need to corroborate details here and not just rely on this phone call. Yes. And so we'd find ample evidence to suggest that she'd been neglected, really poorly treated, and there was ropes and bondage-type straps. Is the house a mess? The house was disgusting. It was evident no one cleaned. Very, very little food. There was like uh, some top ramen, some cup of noodles, some macaroni and cheese, juice like you'd get at a dollar store or whatever. The beds must have been... 20 years old. The springs were gone in them, dust everywhere. I mean, it was a sad state of affair here. And as we're combing this very dungeon type house, there's this teddy bear kind of out of place. (gasps) The nanny cam. Had a nanny cam. So Victoria, she was held captive. Is this nanny cam in the area of her common living area? Where she was supposed to stay at during the day. Just so he can keep an eye on her. Yeah. Was there evidence of the abuse? There was no evidence of the abuse on that nanny camera. Who found the nanny cam and bravo for that person for going, wait a minute, what is that? Yeah, so that was Detective Derek. He was the most experienced detective and everyone's like mentor. So it was kind of fitting that he found it. It was fairly early on in the search. And he goes, hey, hey, got something. What do you think that is? Why is a weird teddy bear up in the corner like that? Gotta be a nanny camera because it was up high and it had like this diagonal angled view of the room. So you could see the whole room. You can only see maybe about half of the window. And so you see Victoria walk to the window and talk to someone out of the window. That was how Dwight knew there was a boy involved. It was because Victoria and Gabriel would speak in the window and that room was being watched. And not only that, she had a bedroom. It was her own bedroom. Nothing in it, not even a dresser. It's just a bed. There was like hampers with clothes, but there's no dresser. There's no pictures. There was no color. The opposite of what you would picture a teenage girl's room looking like. Correct. And there was a hole in the wall. No. Yeah. There's a hole in the wall. 
on the other end of the wall, there was cable that went to the wall. We didn't find any sort of camera, but... She'd been gone for months. Yeah. I know that the cable leading from Dwight's TV to the wall would be connected to some sort of device. Tiny little camera. Yes. And then placed into the wall so he could watch her when she was in the room. Yeah, we seized quite a bit of evidence. So they pick up Dwight. We pick up Dwight. Dwight comes down to our neck of the woods. We put him in an interrogation room in the jail. And I start to interview Dwight. And what's his affect? Is he defiant? Yeah, he was defiant. He was an evil person. I mean, you could see it in his face. He was mad. I've seen a few of those eyes. Like, this guy's psycho. He has no feelings. It was so bad and tense that I started looking on the table to make sure there was no pen sticking around because I didn't want it in my eye. So I read him his rights, developed a little bit of rapport. I actually told him that, hey, man, listen, I know that you were hurt saying that stuff. Just talk to me about it. So then he opened up because now he knows, okay, yeah, I did get played or whatever. Dwight knows that this phone call has happened and he probably suspects that the police were involved and he knows he has to answer to some of the statements he made on that phone call. Yeah. And what about the imprisonment? Dwight never admitted to that. He clammed up quite quickly, but based on the evidence I already had, I said, you know what? We got this guy dead to right. We have Dwight dead to rights. We'll be able to prove that with other means. Any jury who hears what he's already admitted and confessed to is not going to dismiss what Victoria and Gabriel would say on a stand. Was mother just not in the picture? The last time she remembers her mom, Victoria, she says she was about three. And she had mentioned to us that one of the persons that she believed her dad killed was her mom. So Victoria believes that her father's telling the truth that he's killed people. Oh, yeah, 100%. And do you? I mean, yeah, why not? He held his own daughter captive and sexually assaulted her for 13 years. I mean, when you hear how quick he says they'll just kill this dude, he says it multiple times on the phone. That's not beyond reason that he's capable of that. Yeah. yeah. So we don't know what happened to Victoria's mom. Nope. So you wrap up this interview with Dwight. Dwight gets lodged on several charges, I'm sure, at that point. Does he take a plea deal? Is there negotiations? Or does he go to trial? So there was negotiations there about a plea deal. Dwight must have been in his early 50s at the time. I think it was 22 counts they fall on Dwight. And, you know, he's looking at a lot of years. Well beyond natural life. Yeah. Just with a few of those counts, he would have been, he would have probably died in jail, right? He probably passed away in jail. Uh, but he chose the hard route, man. He didn't want to take the plea deal, even though he had a stack of evidence taller than me <laughs> against him. I think he just wanted to exert his control over Victoria until the very last second he could. It is extremely difficult for anyone, but especially someone like Victoria, who has the mindset of a child, to get in front you know, of a jury and a courtroom full of people and a person who's held her captive for years and you know, done every type of assault you could think of. It's very difficult. And I think he was thinking she would buckle. And in the prelim, she did buckle. She actually fainted on the stand. Oh, jeez. 
And we had to call an ambulance. And I remember seeing her fall down and I jumped up in the cord and ran, started sterning, rubbing her, you know, trying to get her up. Trying to revive her. Yeah. She just had a freak out panic attack. And you know who's right next to me doing that? Gabriel. Gabriel. Yeah. Gabriel had seen some commotion and came in because people were now leaving going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Right. And so he's like, what the heck? He was told to stay out of the courtroom. Why? Because he's a witness. This tells you something about Gabriel. Yeah. So you've got people running out of the room and what does Gabriel do? Yeah. He's a champion. So the ambulance comes and takes Victoria. This is prior to lunch. She goes to the hospital. They tell her, yeah, you just had a panic attack. Gave her some water. She stayed in there. She came back to court after lunch and finished her testimony in prelim. Victoria did. Yeah. This is the first time she's seen her dad, her offender, since leaving his house. Since the last time he assaulted her. Yeah. That's a big moment. Big moment. The line of questioning by the defense attorney upset me greatly. I do not get upset at that. Suspects have just as much right as any of us to face their accuser, to ask questions. They do. You do. I'm on board with that. But the line of questioning this guy had for this girl was disgusting and, in my point, unethical. These are questions that he's asking in a prelim. There's no jury there. Correct. These are questions that if he asked him in front of a jury, it's probably not going to play well for his defense. So he's going to get him out of the way in the prelim where there's no audience that's judging his case. Yeah. And he wants the victim to think that she's going to have to go answer these questions again. In front of people. In front of people. So it's a show. Correct. Yeah. That's why I'm saying it's unethical. Oh, wow. That's horrible. Yeah, it was bad. Hey, small town fam. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? So as the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. It's the award-winning home security that we recommend. Hey, small town fam, Detective Dave here. Yardley's right. As a former police officer who's responded to hundreds of alarm calls, the benefits of Simply Safe cannot be understated. On Small Town Dicks, we often discuss home security and situational awareness. Simply Safe provides an easy and effective way for you to accomplish both. Simply Safe was just named Best Home Security System of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. And you, small town fam, can test out a Simply Safe system with absolutely no risk to you with Simply Safe's 60-day risk-free trial. If you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. So protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Be sure to take advantage of the Small Town Fam discount at simplysafe.com slash small town. That's simplysafe.com slash small town. Do it. So prelim, that's done. It goes on for months, just waiting on trial dates. And where is Victoria living during that time? So now she was back with Gabriel's aunt and 
we had a good relationship for, you know, well over a year because that process takes a long time. So in the end, trial gets set. They select a jury. We start calling witnesses and Victoria's like, this is crazy. I can't believe they're making me do this trial, man. And we had it lined up. We're getting ready to go. They had done the pre-structions, the pre-trial instructions, and they struck a deal. They struck a deal. They didn't even call official witness. This is Dwight's first glimpse into, holy shit, we're really doing this. And this is all going to come out. And victim is clearly on board because we've reached this point. Yeah. That, all right, so what's the deal? Yeah. You know, that was not okay to do. The court system is boggled down anyways. So to put on that show, to call juries, to have the opening instructions done, to have all this stuff done and to waste the court's time was not kosher with the particular judge. But also to put Victoria through it. Oh, the worst. You know, normally in plea deals, you get a deal. It's a plea deal. (laughs) It's a little better than what you might get, right? Right. And what the defendant wants is that judge to be bound to the negotiations. The defendant wants the judge to say, yes, I will adhere to the sentencing that you have lined out in that negotiation. In some cases, a judge's like, I'm not on board with that. It's going to be an open sentencing up to my discretion. Oh, you're saying the judge usually says, I'll take the recommendation of the DA. Right. But in some circumstances, the judge is like, no, you're going to agree to an open sentencing. And I'll hear from both sides, the defense and the prosecutor, and I will make a decision based on my own discretion. Which is what occurred. He pleaded open to the court because the DA is like, no, there is no deal, dude. We're here already. There's no deal. We've already done prelim. Our victim fainted. No, this is not okay. We have a courtroom full of people and we're ready to go on this. No, we're not, there's no deal, bro. Well, then I'm going to plead open to the court. Okay. And that's a thing? Yeah. It's a good thing because most judges are more lenient than not here in our jurisdiction. When you plead open to the court, it's just like saying, judge, my fate is in your hands. And most judges are like, yeah, I kind of bend towards passion, so it's a better deal than what the DA would give them. It's kind of middle ground between the defense attorney's going to ask for this, the prosecutor's going to ask for this, and the judge can go, you know what, I'll take the middle ground and favor one side or the other, but you're not going to get the minimum. You're probably not going to get the maximum either. Yeah, so he pled open to the court. He got the maximum time. The judge was very harsh in his words as to the proceedings, very harsh in tone as to the defense in general. And Dwight got convicted. It included all 21 counts. Which ballpark adds up to how many years? About 225 years state prison. Ouch. Oh, my God. Yeah. So when the gavel comes down with the 200 plus years, what's uh, Dwight's affect? Stone face, no emotion. Did he address the court? No. Or the victim? No. Nothing? No. Shows you what kind of person he is. I'll plead guilty, but I'm still not going to say anything to my daughter. The only person that said anything in court, because after this is done, the victim can go up or anyone involved. Our victim's advocate got up and shared some thoughts on behalf of Victoria and Gabriel's aunt said something as well on behalf of the victim. So there's two people that talked. Dwight was present during that. So Dwight got to hear this stuff. There was no way Victoria could have said that stuff in that court. There's no way. So it was good that someone else said it for her. It was on her behalf. So yeah, it was uh, 
very um, eye-opening, life-changing experience to go through that case as a detective. And in law enforcement, especially as a detective in this caseload, you are constantly learning lessons. You're constantly having to evaluate your own, your own bias and your own evaluation of how you're evaluating someone's delivery of information. You have to evaluate all that all the time and try to avoid the callousness where you're like, this is bullshit, I'm not going to listen to this anymore. You have to get through that. And this, early on, I'm guessing you're going, this is one of those cases that I'm going to remember for the rest of my career. Yeah. And your statement on bias can't be closer to the truth. I mean, it's dead on. Nothing I've done in law enforcement has made me re-examine my own biases than working domestic violence and sex crimes. You know, when you work patrol, you're jaded. When you work gangs, you're dealing with gangsters. I mean, you're jaded. No one tells you the truth. They're all liars. And you get into this domestic violence where your world's just changed. And I'm glad because I think when you're on in a patrol level or working gangs, when you're out there, your boots are strapped tight, running and gunning with some pretty hardcore people, you don't trust people and you start looking at people for being criminals. And everyone you contact is bad and going to hurt you. And that's a way that you keep yourself safe on the streets. And so you realize after being in a shooting or a few shootings or a few chases that, hey, man, there are people here that want to hurt me because I'm wearing a badge. And you get jaded. And when you take patrol call after patrol call and you go to these domestic violence victims and you see the same victim three or four times, you're like, I told you this was going to happen. You're stupid. This is your fault. And that's literally the mindset of patrol because they're just jaded. And so then you're getting these half-assed written reports and then you become a detective and you're trying to prove these things. And you're like, why didn't the patrol officer do that or ask that question? And that's why it's so important that we do trainings. And when I was in college, I had went through a domestic violence class and was aware of the cycle of violence. But a lot of young officers or even some older officers just aren't aware of the cycle of violence. And that's a failure on people doing trainings. You need to make these officers aware of things to look for and symptoms of domestic violence. Well, and one of the things as a watch commander now, those initial reports go through the watch commander. We have to approve them and scrutinize them. And patrol officers are transactional by nature. They are slaves to the call screen. You need to keep that call screen clear and keep up, keep your district clean, take all the reports. We call it taking paper. And you need to be efficient. Sometimes you're call to call. Like, I've got to clear this call because there's four more pending. Just in case something big happens, we got to clear this up. So you get to be transactional with your investigations. You ask the basic questions. You don't go further. You're thinking in terms of probable cause and not beyond a reasonable doubt. You're thinking, do I have enough to arrest this person? If I do, I'm going to get to that point where I have probable cause and I'm going to shut it down there. That's up to somebody else to do the follow-up to develop that gulf between probable cause and beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't think in terms of trials. They think in terms of charges. So that was the biggest eye-opener for me in detectives. I prided myself on getting well beyond probable cause, but I wasn't often at beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's where you learn as a detective from prosecutors. And the first time you get cross-examined by a defense attorney and they poke all the holes in your case, and you're like, 
holy shit. I sound like the laziest detective on the planet. I'm never getting embarrassed like that again on the stand. And you start checking those boxes before the DA even asks for them. Yep. The going call to call and trying to keep the call screen and being a slave to dispatch to some degree, that creates this attitude in some patrol officers. They get burnt out and they treat victims and citizens with insensitivity. And that's what we battle. That's why sometimes as a detective, you have to win your victim over again. Because their first encounter was not a good one. Right. You would hope that it'd be common sense, but in law enforcement, like any other job, there's different competencies. There's different competency among patrol and detective. There's different levels of effort. Just like if you think whatever job you're at, you probably have some coworkers, you're like, that guy is squared away. The other person, you're like, they're lazy. I always have to do their work for them too. In this case, in a sexual abuse situation, you have officers that be like, your dad goes to work all the time. Why don't you just leave the house if you don't want him to sexually molest you? You called us. Why don't you just leave? And they don't understand the dynamics of all this, how the dynamics of the relationship. And in this case, Victoria, she doesn't know the outside world. So the outside world to her is scarier than being inside the house. I just have one last question, actually. When Dwight was sentenced, how did Victoria feel? You know, this had been quite some time now since the beginning of this. And so she had a lot of time and she had gone through a lot of therapy prior to the trial setting. She was happy. She had been happy. Life was different. She had now started to enjoy some of the things she never got to enjoy. I think she had digested that for the year leading up to it. So it wasn't like a, a fresh incident to her anymore. She had talked about it, dealt with a bunch of demons. She'll deal with those demons her whole life, if we're being real, right? That stuff doesn't just go away. I mean, I'm sure she's had up and downs, but she stayed with Gabriel's aunt for quite a bit of time. She actually got to go back and get a GED, and she had a lot of resources thrown her way. A lot of resources thrown away, which is how it's supposed to work, right? Yeah, that's lovely. God, amazing. Thank you so much. What an incredible story. I'm deeply grateful for all of the work that all of you do. Great work. Awesome job. Thank you very much. It's appreciated. Small Town Fam, if you'd like to hear more of Detective Scott, he has a couple of snackable nuggets on Patreon right now. Otherwise, you can look forward to his return as one of our guests in Season 8. The whole Small Town Dicks team just wants to say thank you, as always, for listening. Honestly, you guys are the best, best, best. Stay safe and well, and we'll see you next time. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. 
And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the small town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at smalltowndicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.